Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. Today we come to the end of our series in the book of Colossians, and honestly, it's a little bit sad for me. These prison letters of Paul have really been shaping me. I know as I've been preparing it and going through it, and as we've been sharing in it on a Sunday morning, it's really been doing something on the inside of me as it has widened for me the scope of God's grace. It has really helped me to elevate my understanding of God's call on us as believers, and it comes through in every one of these prison letters. And that idea is, is that we as believers would not just have a conversion moment, but that we would go on a journey where we become more like Jesus, that we would be true disciples. And like Paul writes to the church in Colossae in the beginning, how do you know that you are are becoming more like Jesus? How do you know that you really are a disciple? And he says, it's when you love God more and you love people more. You're growing in your love for God and for each other. And we become in that process servants to serve like Jesus served and love like Jesus loved. And so our heart is that all of us would each week as we go in the, on this journey together, as we are here on Sunday mornings feeding on God's Word, as we're in community groups, in discipleship, in relationship, that we would grow and genuinely become the people that God created us to be. Genuinely fulfill the ministry and the call that God has on our lives and, and, and genuine, genuinely uh, represent Jesus to a lost and a dying world. Amen? Come on. That's what we're here for, and that's what these letters have helped us to see. In Ephesians, we discovered the power of the new creation, what it looks like to live in the power and the hope of God that works in us who believe. In Philippians, we learned about the power of contentment in Christ, that contentment is a superpower, that we're able to endure all things and, and, and suffer all things and grow through all things because we are content in Christ. In Philemon, we learned about the power of forgiveness and how powerful it is to walk in forgiveness towards one another as we've received forgiveness from God. And in Colossians, we've seen how uh, serving or pursuing things to fulfill us and, and, and running after uh, religious ideals instead of the person of Jesus will never produce the life of God. What produces the growth that comes from God is a life that is centered in Christ. And so all of these things have, have been so powerful over the last few weeks. Uh, we're uploading them online. Most of them uh, are on YouTube and SoundCloud already. And, uh, and you, you're able, you, you'll be able to go back and listen to the whole Prison Letters series. I think it's close to 30 messages at the moment. Um, so there's some good content for you to work through. But as we come to the end of Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, in chapter 4, which is where we'll be today. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up, go to chapter 4, and uh, we'll be reading from verse 7 in a moment. But, but as, as Paul comes to the end of this letter, he begins to greet some people and mention some people and write down a few names, those that were in partnership with him, that were journeying with him, that were ministering with him, those in Colossae that he was greeting. And he pauses in this very significant moment that I want to talk about today. 
And this moment that we'll look at now in the scripture in a moment actually took me back when I read it to when I was 21 years old. I had been serving in youth ministry from the age of 12 or 13. I was an usher. I used to uh, be part of the welcome and hosting team. I eventually got involved in the media. I did two services every single Sunday. Eventually, I was preaching in, in the youth ministry and leading in the youth ministry. And uh, at one point in my early 20s, I got employed by a large church here in our city to be the youth leader and the youth pastor. And and at that time, just before I became the youth leader, I was about 21 years old, and I was just sitting in church on a Sunday night. I had long blonde hair, ripped jeans, slip-on vans, and, um, and a white and pink Quicksilver t-shirt. In fact, there's an image of, yeah, I, I'd actually cut my hair at that point. My hair was a little bit shorter than it was on the night that I'm mentioning now, and, and, um, and I was just sitting in church, and uh, that's gold. That's gold. No, everybody, put your phones away. No photos. No photos. And I was just sitting in church, and the pastor was preaching his message. And then at one point in the message, he stopped, and he pointed at me, and he said, That young man, Adrian, come here. I don't know if I'd done something wrong. You know, when, when you're sitting in church and your pastor calls your name, it can be either really good or really bad. And I was a little bit skeptical at the moment. I went and stood in front of him, and he looked at me for a while. And he turned around and he said, will you bring me some oil? And somebody handed him a whole jar of oil. And I thought he was just going to kind of dip his finger and just do some anointing of me in the moment. But instead, he looked at me and he poured, he turned the jar upside down and started pouring the oil over my head in front of the church that night. And as he did that, he said these words, he said, drink this for it shall be the mark of your life. He looked at me, he said, your eyes will burn tonight, young man, but tomorrow they will see. Because the Lord has separated you for a specific purpose. And then he looked at me again and he said this, he said these words. He said, now you stay focused because the call of God is very sharp. Now you take care, stay focused because the call of God is very sharp. That was 18 years ago. Since that time, the devil has sent many invitations to me. The enemy has sent me invitations to step back, to step out, to step away, to pursue other things. He's come against my ministry, my person, my family. Um, he's brought the flood in, in many different ways. But the one goal that I, I have always held on to was to take care, to stay focused because of how specific and sharp and intentional the call of God is on my life. I cannot afford the luxury of being distracted or being lured away by other things that may hinder my journey because God wants to do something in the lives of others. Other lives depend on it. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about us. It's about all the people that God wants to reach through us. So stay focused. The call of God is very sharp. It has a specific plan in a specific time that we are all called to run in and to fulfill. And so my hope has always been that at the end of my life, I could say the words that Paul said when he wrote to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 4 verse 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
I want to be able to say that at the end of my life. Man, there were ups and downs. It wasn't always easy. It wasn't always smooth sailing. But at the end of my life, I can say, I have run this course that God laid out before me. I have finished this race and I have kept the faith. And my goal is that I wouldn't arrive at the finish line alone. That all of us as a community and as a people, as we journey together, will be able to stand on the other side of that line one day and say, we ran the race. We stayed the course. We fought the good fight and we kept the faith. And that's my goal, church, that we go together, that we grow together, that we become together, that we fulfill together. It's a team effort. And that's what we see here at the end of Colossians, the partnerships, the relationships, the friendships, the the, the gatherings, the conversations, the partnerships that happened for the sake of the gospel across the expanse of the world in order to see Jesus preached and people brought to maturity in him. So it's a team effort where a group of ordinary people become fellow soldiers, co-workers, co-laborers in the call of God. It made me think of those sequoia trees and giant redwoods that you get out in uh, the the western coast of of the U.S. and California and those regions. These massive trees that grow to over 100 meters tall, which is kind of unfathomable. If you you stand there, the the scale is, is just something that's hard to comprehend. And there you'd see a car just at the trunk of some of these trees and and and. The, the scale of that whole thing and the, the height of those trees always make me think, I wonder what their roots look like. I mean, you'd think those roots are, you know, tapping oil. I mean, they're, they're breaking through, in, through the crust of the earth at some point to be able to uphold such tall trees. And then I did some research on the roots of those sequoia trees to find that their roots aren't actually that deep. So how do they stand so strong? How do they stand against prevailing winds and and earthquakes and all the things that happen in that area? How do they stand? And they found that those trees actually intertwine their roots with one another. They don't grow alone. They don't reach those heights alone. They do it because below the surface, they have intertwined the, the, the establishment of their firmness and their growth and their, and their journey with the trees alongside them. And if you were to uproot one of them, you would have to uproot all of them or else separate one's roots from another. And I thought that is so the enemy's strategy. He doesn't want you to fulfill the potential and go the distance that God has has ordained for you. So what he'll do is the first thing that the enemy will do to a believer is isolate him. Make him or her believe that they are on their own, that no one cares. Create a distorted view of God's kingdom and kingdom partnership and the church will come against the church throughout the centuries, wave after wave after wave uh, of, of, of um, rumor and, and, and false accusations and a distorting of the view of church has come about. The world is constantly breaking down the idea of what the church is because the enemy would love to disrupt and distort your view of the community of faith that you're a part of. Get you to believe that you can be a believer and fulfill your potential without people around you. And it's simply a lie. None of us will ever reach those heights until we intertwine our roots, find stability in each other's company, 
and accountability and grow to our absolute potential. So the kingdom is all about partnership. It's all about relationship and community. I want to read to you Colossians chapter 4 here from, from verse 7. Uh, just, and I'm just going to read through this whole passage and just show you how much Paul actually relied on others and partnered with others. And, and in Colossians 4 verse 7, it says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. Now, Tychicus was actually the one who was designated to carry the letter to the Colossians to Colossae and to read it out loud. And so Tychicus is mentioned first. He's the guy who's going to take that letter and he's going to go and read it to them. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that, we may encourage, that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Bob, Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and, that, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea and say to Archippus. Now, this is that moment. He's busy mentioning all these names. And this is that moment that took me back to 21-year-old me sitting in a church service on a Sunday night. He said, say to Archippus, see that you fulfill your ministry. See that you fulfill your ministry that you've received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Say to Archippus, fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I want to share a message with you today entitled, Fulfill Your Ministry. Fulfill your ministry. Fulfill the ministry that God has given you. These were men and women with roots entwined for the sake of the gospel, so that together they could fulfill the ministry that they had received, not standing alone, but going together and growing together. And all of that starts with this Archippus moment, where you recognize that you, as an individual, as a person created by God, saved in Christ Jesus, redeemed by His blood, that you are a part of this story, that you have a specific call on your life and a specific part to play, a specific role to fulfill, that God included you by His grace in this incredible story of redemption that He is working out throughout the ages. And we have been called to live in this time of history, in this space, on this continent to fulfill that plan, to run in that purpose and to play our part. Have you heard the call of God for your own life? It's a mistake to think that only people who stand on stages and hold microphones are called. 
that only people who work full-time for the church are called, that only people that, that, that have an, a traveling ministry or some sort of a preaching ministry are called. No, we have received a ministry from the Lord. My little daughter is about two or three weeks away from being born. And I speak to her in the womb. I, I, I literally go up against Lee's tummy and then I have these conversations with her. Sometimes it gives her hiccups and sometimes it makes her kick real hard. I don't know if she's trying to get away from my voice. Maybe I'm irritating her. I'll find out later. But, but the thing is, is that I know she hears my voice. She can hear my voice in, in the womb. And what the doula was saying to us this week was that Oftentimes when those babies are born and the dad has been speaking to them, when the dad speaks after they're born, they recognize the voice and it actually calms them down. They're like, I know this voice. And I thought how much that was like God's voice in our lives. Because he knew us before we were born and ordained us and consecrated us and appointed us as prophets to the nation. And so we, inside of us, we, we know that voice. And so when you hear the call of God, it's like something on the inside of you stands up and says, I know that voice. I recognize the, that voice. That's the voice of my father. I can trust that voice and I can follow that voice. So as Paul runs through all of these friends and co-laborers, he gets to the end in verse 17 where he suddenly stops. And it's as if he looks up and he, and he goes, that young man, Archippus. Say to him, see that you fulfill the ministry you have received in the Lord. Now, these letters were meant and, and written to be read out loud. They only made copies of them later on, but originally those original letters were taken to those churches and read out to everybody in that congregation, and they were usually read out in one sitting. And so I can imagine Tychicus getting to, Coloss to Colossae and, and reading out the letter from Paul and going through all these incredible verses and this amazing doctrine and truths that we receive in these letters and getting to the end. And Archippus is sitting in the congregation. He goes, man, God is speaking. This is a powerful word. And all of a sudden it goes, and say to Archippus. I could just imagine him sitting up going, I am mentioned in this story. My name is mentioned like, you mean me? That God has a specific part for me to play? I can imagine his heart just overflowing at hearing the call of God, his name specifically mentioned, and his response being, what do you want me to do, Lord? I'm in, God. You see me? You know me? You understand me? You have a plan for me? I'm in. Just tell me what you want me to do. I was born for this. My question for you this morning is, have you heard God call your name? Have you heard God call you by your name? Because when we hear that voice, our response is the same as the young prophet Samuel when he was in the temple and God called his name and, and he stood up and said, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. When we hear our names called, we take on a posture of servanthood at the just the gratitude and the overwhelming privilege of being singled out by God as, as being called. God saying, I have called you. I have a plan for you. I have a role for you to fulfill. This is something we have received. The first thing it tells us about this calling is that it's something we received in Jesus. He gave it to us by His grace. It reminds me of the story of Charles Spurgeon and his conversion 
as he came to faith. Now, we've spoken a lot about Martin Luther, and I'll mention some stuff from Martin Luther now in a moment, and we've pretty much bought, every, bought and sold every one of these books that was left in South Africa at this point, going through the journey of Martin Luther as we've been going through the book of Colossians. But I wanted to just mention this morning the conversion moment for Charles Spurgeon that he writes about in his autobiography and that has been written about by many biographers since then. But it was in January 1850, when Charles Spurgeon was 15 years old, wasn't quite a believer, but woke up one January morning and thought to himself, I need to get to church. I just feel like God has something for me, something he wants to say. And so he felt God stirring him up and he got up and he went, he went to church. And as he was on his way, a snowstorm kicked up and this storm ended up being quite violent and he needed to seek shelter. So instead of going to the church he had intended, he ducked into a primitive little Methodist chapel off Artillery Street in Colchester. And he snuck in the back. There was just a handful of people there and he sat under the gallery. And even the pastor who was supposed to preach that day got caught up in the storm and couldn't make it out to the church. And so instead, just an ordinary layman, just somebody who was a part of that church got up to preach a message. And he was apparently not really good at doing that. That wasn't his field of expertise. This untrained, ineloquent layman took to the pulpit to preach. And Spurgeon later wrote about this skinny man who could hardly pronounce a single word correctly. In fact, in Spurgeon's own autobiography, he refers to him as rather stupid. <laughs> Got up this rather stupid, skinny man. And so he just opened a text. And his text that day was Isaiah 45, verse 22, where God says, Look unto me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Look unto me and be saved. And because this man didn't have much of a message, he just kept reading that verse over and over and over again for the lion's share of, of the sermon. And, and Charles Spurgeon said that God was in that. Because that verse started to drive deeper and deeper and deeper into the heart of a 15-year-old Charles Spurgeon. And then in his autobiography, Spurgeon writes, Then stopping, he pointed to where I was sitting under the gallery and said, That young man there looks very miserable. I'm going to try this one Sunday. One Sunday, I'm just going to point to one of you and go, That young man, that young man, you look very miserable. Then he shouted, Young man, look, look, look now to Jesus. And in that moment, Charles Spurgeon felt the Holy Spirit flood his heart, and he gave his life to Jesus. That's the instant that he mentions as his conversion moment, and it's one of the greatest conversion stories ever told, because Charles Spurgeon went on to become the Prince of Preachers, led a revival in in, in, in Britain and that, that spread throughout the world. It was an incredible exposition of the scriptures and, and, and has added so much to the church globally. Thousands of people got saved because one untrained, skinny, ineloquent man got up and decided to read a verse over and over and over again. That layman is lost to church history. We know nothing about him. We don't even know his name. All we know is that he, in his own untrained, ineloquent way, 
called a 15-year-old Charles Spurgeon to look to Jesus. And if you measure sermons by their results, it was one of the greatest sermons ever preached. That feels a lot like this moment of Archippus, where the Holy Spirit obviously moved over Paul's heart. And as he's writing, he says, and say to Archippus, fulfill the ministry that you've received from the Lord. Martin Luther wrote in his preamble to Romans, which is really seen as his masterpiece. He says, faith is a divine work in us, which changes us and makes us to be born anew of God. Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and certain that the believer would stake his life on it a thousand times. This knowledge of and confidence in God's grace makes men glad and bold and happy in dealing with God and all creatures. And this is the work which the Holy Spirit performed in faith. Because of it, without compulsion, a person is ready and glad to do good to everyone and to serve everyone, to suffer everything out of love and to praise God who has shown him this grace. Thus, it is impossible to separate works from faith quite as impossible as to separate heat and light from fire. When you've received the grace of God and you understand what it is, you are so ready to fulfill the ministry that God has given you. You're so ready to be obedient. You're so ready to be self-sacrificial. You're so ready to serve others. You're so ready to become like Jesus in fulfilling the call of God on your life. And you have no idea what God might do on the other side of your obedience. How many people will be blessed as you fulfill the ministry that you have received? Luther's words written in this preface, as he communicated what it meant to be born anew, were read out aloud two centuries later in May 1738. And a man by the name of John Wesley was sitting there hearing these words read out loud. And he instantly had his own archipus moment. He had his own moment of conversion, which led to him preaching that same gospel message on a grand scale, which had huge historical ramifications, including the Methodist revival of the 18th century, which in turn led to the conversion of William Wilberforce, who led the battle to end slavery in our world. It also led to the ministry and preaching of George Whitefield in the American colonies, which united those colonies under these same egalitarian ideals and produced freedom even at a social level for so many people. So you have no idea what God might do through you when you simply say yes, when you simply respond in faith. I want to zoom in on a few mentions a few men, in fact, three men that were mentioned here. Because like us, they probably all had good excuses as to why they can't quite fulfill the ministry, why they can't quite give 100%, why they're not educated enough, qualified enough, or useful enough to God. And the first one, because these men, they all have interesting backstories, but the first one I want to look at is Onesimus. Because we already spoke about Onesimus in the book of Philemon, where Onesimus was a runaway slave. He was actually a bondservant of one of the believers in Colossae, a man by the name of Philemon, to whom Paul writes that letter, kind of redefining what it looks like to work together as brothers. And these were the very first movements towards a world in which slavery would become outlawed. 
It was outlawed through Christianity and these ideas. Philemon was a believer from Colossae, and Onesimus was his slave that had run away. And then Onesimus met Paul on the journey in Rome and, and, and came to Jesus, came to faith in Jesus. And now Onesimus is going to travel back to Colossae, to Philemon, with Tychicus. So he's going to travel back home and be re reunited with his former master. The only thing is now they both have a new master in Christ. And the relationship has been redefined. So Paul writes to Philemon and he reiterates that Onesimus is a brother. He's written him a separate letter, but now even here he says in Colossians 4.9, With him is Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. No more slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, all are one in Christ. We all carry this ministry that we can fulfill together. In these words, freedom and equality in our world were redefined. It's these words that William Wilberforce used to argue against slavery, which, by the way, wasn't a British concept, but an ancient one. As long as empires have existed, slavery has existed, and Christianity was the movement that changed that. So when God calls your name, you might be saying, I can't fulfill my ministry because I am a slave like Onesimus to many things. Sometimes we feel like slaves. Sometimes we feel like captives. Sometimes we feel like we're shackled. And maybe you're here and you're saying, I've heard God's voice, but at the same time, I'm addicted to something. I'm a slave to addiction. Maybe it's to a substance or to, to a specific sin or a specific, specific thought process that you feel enslaved by in your life. And you say, I, like Onesimus, cannot fulfill my ministry because I'm a slave like he was. Maybe it's those ever-present self-doubts and those thoughts that haunt you. Maybe you're held captive by your hurts from the past or your experience as you've grown. Maybe you're a slave to your work schedule. You say, I've just got too much going on. I can't fulfill my ministry because I'm just barely surviving. But it brings me back to that moment to why did that pastor, when he prayed over me, why did he feel he needed to pour oil out over my head? And it's really because it symbolizes the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And the anointing of the Holy Spirit is symbolism, that, 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 that oil is symbolism of how the Holy Spirit is present and His power is at work even through ordinary people and places. So you can take an ordinary person and then put the anointing of God's Holy Spirit on them and they're able to exceed all their former limitations. Your capacity becomes limitless in Christ because you've been anointed by God for a specific purpose. One of the first things that it tells us when it speaks about Jesus in Luke 4.18, Jesus gave his own manifesto, what he was on earth to do. And he said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me, empowered me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom. For the prisoners. So when you feel enslaved by your own personal limitations, it is the anointing of the Holy Spirit on you that sets you free of those limitations, that sets you free. God's grace sets you free from slavery to sin. 
when we look at the name Jesus Christ, Christ is not Jesus' surname. Christ means the anointed one. Jesus, the anointed one. And as Christians, we are little anointed ones. And so we carry the same anointing of God on our lives, the same work of the Spirit on our lives to set the captives free. And, and what that anointing does, Isaiah ten twenty seven says, it shall come to pass in that day that his burden will be taken away from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing oil. So the anointing breaks the yoke of slavery over our lives and allows us to fulfill a purpose and a calling far greater than anything we could ever have done in our own strength. God has given us the grace to fulfill our ministry. The second person that I want to look at is Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Now, there's a good amount of context here, and there's a reason why Paul puts in brackets after he mentions Mark concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. It's like, okay, there's a whole story going on here. Like, there's Mark, he's coming, and he's like, hey guys, I told you about him earlier. So when he comes, just welcome him. It's like, it sounds like something, something went down. There was some relational stuff going on. It sounds like there was conversations about Mark that happened before. Why would Paul tell them to welcome Mark specifically? This is the same Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark. And it's because at a point that we read about in the book of Acts, Paul actually had a fallout with Mark. They had a fight. And Paul might have even said some negative things about Mark because of the sharpness and Paul's intentionality around the call of God. He didn't take kindly to those who withdrew, to those who weren't courageous, to those who weren't faithful. And so in Acts 15 verse 36, it says, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them at Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And so Paul didn't like Mark very much because previously he withdrew. He failed. He, he walked away in a moment of calling. He turned away from the call of God, maybe out of fear, maybe he was burnt out, maybe whatever it was, we don't know, but he felt that he was going to withdraw and go back home. And so Paul didn't trust that he would be committed and faithful in fulfilling the ministry. Now, if we're all honest, we have all withdrawn at some point or another. We've all stepped back or stepped out or or pulled away to a certain extent because we felt that we just didn't want to continue the journey right now. Some of us have failed. We've fallen short and we feel like we've disqualified ourselves or relegated ourselves to the back benches of church. Like, I no longer can fulfill a grand ministry that God has for me. I'm just going to sit in the back and then, uh, you know, s slip out after the service. I, I, I don't want to be in the trenches. I don't want to be front and center. So many of us feel that through our failures or our fears, we've actually disqualified ourselves or turned away from the call of God. But God sees us differently. Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, took Mark and worked with him. 
and discipled him and encouraged him. And it was so effective and produced such great growth in him that later Paul writes this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.11. He says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. That's, that's a 180. That's a, that's a massive change. You see, if you've failed or you've fallen short or you've uh, gone through a dip in your own calling, what you need is not to turn around and feel like you're disqualified, but to lean in to a process of discipleship and encouragement so that you can again step up and into the call of God for your life. Don't fall away. Step in. Lean in. Just because you failed doesn't mean your story is over. Just because you failed doesn't mean you can't fulfill. Fulfill the ministry that you have received and keep pressing on. Finally, we come to the saddest name mentioned in this list of names, and it's the name of Demas. This one's really sad because we can kind of see how Paul has something positive to say about all of the different people that he's mentioned. He's like, this one started a church, and this one's praying for you, and this one's worked hard, this one's a fellow soldier, and this one's a beloved physician. I mean, people get their own adjectives. They get all kinds of amazing things said about them. And then, and then Paul writes, and he says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. Uh, yeah, and Demas, he's also here. And so it was like Paul could already pick up that there was something happening in the heart of Demas, something happening in his attitude towards the kingdom. Demas is just Demas. Paul doesn't have a positive word here. And so we see what was actually going on again when we read 2 Timothy 4 verse 10, where he says, For Demas, having loved the pleasures of this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas, who was privileged enough to be included in Paul's ministering party and, and fellowship and being able to effect change across the world, had his heart distracted and diverted by the pleasures of this world. I want to say to you, don't be a Demas, church. Don't be a Demas. Don't let the enemy bring to you all these thoughts of what it looks like to live a fulfilled life but they will ultimately leave you unfulfilled and your ministry unfulfilled because he loved the world. He loved the pleasures of this world. He loved the feeling he got from the things of this world. And it shows us that it is possible to leave our ministries unfulfilled. It's not a guarantee that your ministry will be fulfilled. If you get distracted and you fall in love with the voice of the world, and the voice of the world becomes louder to you than the call of God that you know that you have heard, you will leave it unfulfilled. You will not be able to stand at the end of your race and say, I did absolutely everything that God called me to do. I ran the race. I kept the faith. I finished strong. I will not hear God say to me at the, at the gates of heaven, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. Because I fell in love with the world. Do not fall in love with temporal things and forego eternal treasures. 
God has got so much for us. Demas left his ministry unfulfilled because the things of this world became louder to him than the call of God. So today I want us all to hear that same message that Archippus heard. And I want you to hear it in your own name. I want you to hear God saying, Sue, Grant, Carsten, Greg, Joe, fulfill the ministry you have received from the Lord. It is specific and it is sharp. Take care. Stay focused. Keep leaning into that voice. Intertwine your roots with the roots of other believers. Keep growing and keep going. Amen? Come on, church. We're going to stand at that finish line together, and we're going to fulfill the ministry that the Lord has given us. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me this morning?